Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Victoria Law, who is a freelance journalist focusing on women's incarceration. She is the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, which I highly recommend, and co-author of Your Home is Your Prison, coming out next year. Since 2003, she has edited Tenacious, Art and Writings by Women in Prison. She recently published an article in In These Times magazine called Corporations are profiting from immigrant detainees' labor. Some say it's slavery. Her website is victorialaw.net. Victoria Law, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing the work you're doing. Let me start with an obvious question. Uh, Do you say it's slavery? Well, I say that any work that is uh, obtained by fraud, force, or coercion, which is, you know, what people have been alleging against these private prison corporations, indeed is slavery because people are not free to leave. They're not free to decide not to work without huge consequences. So, yes, um, I don't want to minimize um, the horrors of slavery, of U.S. slavery. So um, I prefer not to use the term because obviously people are not being lashed and having their children ripped from them and being forced, forcibly uh, bred. But at the same time, people who are not allowed to leave, who are forced to work and have no recourse in sight, very much are under these conditions. Right. I, I sometimes have talked about the, the volunteer military in the United mm. States as the one voluntary thing you're not allowed to quit volunteering for. But that isn't true, is it? These these volunteer work programs in prison, not exactly volunteer, are they? They are not. Um, as, as my uh, article points out, people are while it said that while the program is called the voluntary work program and ICE defines it as people are given the opportunity to volunteer to work for um for one dollar per day wages, they actually in many cases are not actually volunteering because if they try to take a day off, if they try to say no to working um, if they try to say no to working unreasonable hours or unreasonable shifts, like one person was threatened with being moved to a more dangerous housing unit when he was woken up at 2 a.m. and told to work the 2 a.m. shift instead of the 10 a.m. shift, um, it actually is not voluntary. It actually is coercive. And and, and these types of programs are not just uh, the property of, of ICE. I mean, this is something that goes on in similar form in in other U.S. Uh, and, and state prisons in the United States, right? Yes. It, they act, um, people in jails and prisons are often used, um, their labor is often used to keep the prisons and the jails going. So they end up um, having to do things like mop the floors, cook for the other people who are incarcerated inside, um, work in, say, a prison barber shop, mow the lawns, maintain the maintain the grounds. So these are all 
jobs that if you had to pay somebody on the outside minimum wage, even if it was just minimum wage, um, you would end up the jail, the prison, or the immigrant detention center would end up spending thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on these same jobs. But if you can coerce somebody who is incarcerated within to work for either $1 a day or 20 cents an hour, or in some cases, people are not paid at all, but they are allowed a few extra privileges, like maybe being able to go out to the yard or to the law library, um, or getting a little bit of extra food in exchange for their labor, Yeah, the facility can save so much money. Um, and it's also a way to keep people occupied so that they're not just sitting there thinking about causing trouble. So is a profit interest uh, driving such programs, and is a profit interest uh, driving incarceration policy so that uh, prisons that are providing uh, women to work on farms, for example, are making mm-hmm. sure those prison beds are, are full with potential workers? Well, I think in the case of private prison corporations, the profit motive is huge because they are corporations. Um, at the end of the day, they are beholden to their shareholders. They need to show their shareholders that um, they're bringing in, you know, much more revenue than they are putting out, um, that their profit is great. So, again, if you can pay, if you don't have to pay hundreds of people to do these jobs of, like, cooking and cleaning and all the other maintenance type of things, and you can instead only have to pay for security staff, um, maybe basic medical staff, maybe something else, then you can turn around to your shareholders and say, we have, you know, we have X amount of revenue and we're not putting out that much in labor costs. For example, Stewart Det- the Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia, which is one of the private prison, private immigrant detention centers, which is currently um, being sued for forced labor, um, employs 300 outside employees. 300 for over a thousand people detained because they can actually use detained people's labor to do things like cooking. How many people would you have to employ to cook for um, over 1,000 people? How many people would you have to employ to clean the toilets and clean the floors um, and do the laundry for over 1,000 people? If you had to pay minimum wage for each and every one of those jobs, that would cut into your profit margins quite a bit. At the same time, I want to caution listeners against thinking that it's just profit that drives mass incarceration because um, while mass incarceration, while jails and prisons and immigrant detention centers often cut costs um, such as labor costs or food costs or, you know, like, uh, you know, like the cost of paying employees or providing a law library or doing all sorts of other, you know, or providing all sorts of other necessities, profit isn't the main motivator for mass incarceration. It's a way to get people who are considered undesirable off the streets, um, out of their homes, their communities, and also to prevent people from organizing and mobilizing around social injustices and social oppressions. And then there is the added bonus where if they land in, say, a private prison corporation or if a private company can contract with a publicly run prison, as we see in many state-run prisons, there's just the added bonus that somebody can profit off of their misery and oppression. 
Are, are, are there other less rational motivations, uh, including uh, sadism? I, I mean, what, what's your view of the, of the incredible cruelty that's been in the news recently of, of immigrant families being ripped apart, children being taken from parents? Who, who does that protect from anything? doesn't protect anyone from anything. I mean, maybe it protects children from being around loving parents and traumatizes them for life if you wanted to protect them from having a trauma-free life. But I think that there's, there's a notion that people come... There's a xenophobic notion that has been fanned over the past several years. You know, like it obviously precedes the current president and the current administration, you know, but he rode this xenophobia into into office where um, where people believe that if you try to enter this country, you get what you deserve in the same way that people think that if you are accused of committing a crime, you don't even have to be found guilty, but you can be accused of committing a crime and end up in jail awaiting your day in court and you suffer unspeakable horrors and injustices such as, you know, being brutalized, being denied medical care, having your life threatened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Somehow it's your own moral failing and your own moral shortcoming. And it doesn't look at a broader picture of what is happening in the, in society, whether it be inside the U S society, um, in terms of racism, uh, economics, economic inequality, racial profiling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or if you are coming from a country which U.S. policy has decimated um, over over years and years, if not decades, that have forced a person to flee their home country, leave everyone that they know and that they love, and try to seek safety in the United States. But there's a notion that somehow you get what you deserve. And so if you didn't want to, say, have your baby ripped away from you at the border, you shouldn't. You should have stayed where you were and faced threats of violence and death yeah. rather than coming to this country that's been held out as a beacon of hope. And, and the baby should have made wiser decisions as well, I, I suppose. Yes. I um, mean, like, like this kind of, um, there's a there's a moral discrepancy in that we care about some babies and we don't care about others. And we can see that in the reactions in people's reactions to uh, families being forcibly separated at the border. Indeed. Uh, we're speaking with Victoria Law, whose books include Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women. Uh, and, and this is a book that gives a great overview of the state of U.S. incarceration of women and of how some of those women are trying to resist. Um, how, how many women are locked up now in the United States and, and how does their incarceration compare with that of men? So uh, incarcerated women make up roughly 10, maybe 12 percent of the uh, incarcerated population in jails and prisons. So this is not counting women who are in immigrant detention centers who are off uh, because immigrant detention centers centers are counted differently when you start putting all the the, um, the numbers together. So they make up 10, maybe 12 percent. Um, there are over 200,000 women behind bars, so that's in jails, um, awaiting trial. You know, they've been accused but not convicted, or they're serving very short sentences that only require them to be in a jail, like, say, less than uh, 12 months, or in state or federal prisons. So there are 
2.2 million people behind bars. There are, are maybe 215, 220,000 of them are in women's jails and prisons. I also want to note that there are trans women in men's jails and prisons across the country, and nobody knows how many transgender women there are behind bars because nobody keeps track of this statistic. Uh, jails and prisons often don't count them. They often refuse to acknowledge that they that there are trans women in their facilities. Um, so we don't have an idea of that. So you think of 214,000 women in women's jails and prisons plus an unknown number of trans women in men's jails and prisons who are not being counted. I reading your book, uh, which looks at how women have tried to organize and demand better treatment in various areas, including relations with with young children and and uh, medical care and education and so forth. Um, you know, I'm struck first by the fact that so many of these women lack basic education, uh, and you write that that about half have suffered past physical or sexual abuse. Uh, I mean, these are, are women who weren't given much of a chance in the first place. Yes. I mean, prisons are a place where people who have the least amount of resources and the least amount of opportunities and are often black, brown immigrants um, and unable to access those resources and opportunities, even by this meritocracy that we have. Um, because of the color of their skin and the racism that prevails in our society, um, then are criminalized either because they are um, surviving on criminalized means, such as, you know, uh, street-based sex work, you know, uh, or, you know, like, or small uh, small drug dealing. But they're not actually given opportunities, or they might be involved in relationships in which they get caught up in somebody else's um, in somebody else's illegal actions. And again and again, we see the U.S. Uh, legal system punishing those who have the least. Um, and in cases like federal drug conspiracy cases, so we have the uh, we have the recent case of Alice Johnson, the sixty-two, I think, sixty-one-year-old grandmother who was sentenced to life without parole in the federal system, who was recently given a commutation and released from prison by the president, which was astounding. But in 1991, she was arrested as part of a drug conspiracy, and her role was the woman that passed along messages. So somebody called her and said, hey, you know, I'm in town. And she would then say, great, and she would call local drug dealer and say so-and-so is in town and the drug dealer would say well tell him to meet me on the corner of x and y the other person would call her back and she would pass along that message and for that she got money and the reason why she started doing that is because she had been laid off from her job the year before it was a job that had paid her benefits it was a job that allowed her to support her family of three children and herself um and she had gotten a new job at someplace else and it didn't pay her enough to make ends meet. So as a single mother who was black living in the South with not a lot of job opportunities, when somebody came along and said, how would you like to make some easy money? You don't have to, you don't have to handle drugs. You don't have to see anybody. You know, you're basically kind of not put in any sort of danger 
you know, she said yes. And when everybody was arrested, she had the least amount of knowledge to be able to trade for a lesser sentence. So in the way that the criminal legal system works, oftentimes the prosecutors will come and they will arrest you. And if you are able to say, hey, I can give you the drug kingpins above me, or I can give you the names of everybody in my network, you would you can bargain that down for a lesser charge and a lesser sentence. Alice Johnson did not have that as the person who just passed along phone messages for a few hundred dollars to keep a roof over her kid's head and food on the table. So she ended up not being able to parlay that into a deal and got life without parole. And in the federal prison system, there actually is no parole. So I I apologize, I misspoke, but it is a life sentence is a life sentence unless by some miracle some president decides to issue you clemency. So when we think about Alice Johnson and this, um, and the fact that she, her sentence was commuted and she was allowed to go home, we have to think about the fact that there are hundreds of other people in similar situations whose names we don't know and who don't have big name celebrities going and lobbying for their freedom. Indeed. Uh, a, a lot of your book uh, and what you write in your book you think has been uh, insufficiently paid attention to heretofore is is how women in prison in in many cases take steps to try to uh, improve their conditions a little bit. Can you can you talk about some examples of, of what can be done after you're locked up? Yes. Um, so, for example, we talk about uh, you just mentioned the fact that so many women have had uh, or have not had access to a lot of formal education. Their literacy level is not super great. Their formal education level is not great. This does not mean that they are stupid or dumb, but it may mean that when they are given a form that is in either legalese or medicalese, they may not understand what this means. They may not be able to parse out things that people learn that many people learn while they are in school, like how to read a document, you know, how to how to be able to make heads or tails out of this. So say if you go to a doctor and your literacy level is not great, and the way that you describe things is my tummy hurts rather than I have an ache, you know, in my abdomen and it feels like this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The doctor might say you have a tummy ache, uh, drink some water and go away. Not, you know, like, hey, you've been having this sharp blinding pain in your abdomen for the past three weeks. And this is what happens, you know, like when you do X, Y, or Z, maybe let's look into whether or not it's A, B, or C. So women have organized to teach each other how to advocate for better medical care. Because in prisons, both publicly run prisons and private prisons, medical care is atrocious. Um, It's often uh, substandard. It's often inadequate. Women often have women and men. I don't want to say that men are having this wonderful healthcare system in their prisons because they are not. Um, but people in prisons often face huge barriers to actually getting to uh, medical care in the first place, whether it's that the guard does not want to escort them down to the medical office. Um, unlike what you see in, say, shows like Orange is the New Black, people don't actually get to wander around the prison of their own accord. Every You need to be issued a pass to go from point A to point B. So if you want to go from your dormitory or your cell to the medical unit, a guard must write you a pass that says, you know, Alice Johnson is allowed to go from her cell to the medical unit at 11 a.m. If the guard decides that they don't want to give you that pass, 
too bad, so sad for you. You're not being the doctor. Right. Um, so women have banded together to help uh, teach each other, like, what kinds of questions to ask, how to formulate their um, their complaints, how to read test results, especially if you have a chronic illness such as hepatitis or HIV, and you may not understand what are these results. Understanding what kinds of questions to ask, too, if you are diagnosed with something like HIV or hepatitis, which are uh, chronic illnesses and diseases that are not taught most people in schools. Like, hey, this is what you do if you find out that you're HIV positive. These are the questions to ask. These are the kinds of medications that you might want to be asking for type of thing. So it's sharing that kind of very crucial information with each other and helping each other stay alive. And it's not the kind of sexy uprising or rebellions or work strikes that catch media attention, but it is a very life-saving type of organizing. In the book, you do talk about uh, hunger strikes, among other things, of lawsuits, um, report filing grievances, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm I'm interested in you. You also say that in some cases, getting word out of a prison and into the media and into the public is more effective than uh, filing a grievance or a lawsuit. Um, and you've worked with women in prison to to tell their stories. What? What kind of hurdles do they face in in trying to uh, speak publicly about conditions inside a prison? Well, oftentimes it's, A, trying to even get a hold of the media. So unlike people on the outside, people in prisons don't have access to the Internet as we know it. Um, Some prisons have a very limited form of email or maybe e-messaging would be a better form of saying it. So in which you can go to a kiosk. And you can send a message for, you know, like 30 cents or 40 cents to somebody who has already uh, approved you to contact them. So basically, right. like, uh, a random person in prison cannot say, get a hold of my email address and just email me. Um, I would have to say, like, yes, I allow this person to contact me. And then they would be able to send and pay me a money. message via this email. Yeah, <laughs> and pay money. But they don't have access to the Internet to be able to say, like... How would I find sympathetic reporters who might cover my, you know, who might cover what's going on in here? Um, So first of all, there's not that wide access to information. Um, And then there are, you know, like uh, challenges of sending things out via either postal mail or this e-messaging, which often has uh, security scanners in which basically there's like a keyword search that can be written into the program so that say things like hunger strike, work strike, you know, rebellion, you know, like there there are keywords escape um, can all be like flagged and then somebody actually will like pause the message. It won't go out immediately. And a staff member reads the message to see what exactly um, the message says. So it could be like the word escape. It might be like, hey, you know, like what I've been doing to escape this reality is doing yoga. Right. Good. You know, but it might be like, hey, my escape plot is blah, blah, blah. But it also means then that if people are saying, you know, this medical care is atrocious and three people have been diagnosed with X, but really they were misdiagnosed and Y happens and this, that, and the other, it's very difficult to get that kind of information out. At the same time, without getting, if you don't get that information out, people don't know what's happening inside jails and prisons. And as we know, with all things, you know, all injustices, if 
there is no light shown on, shined on it, then it just continues right. um, unabated. I, I'm struck when in reading your book, uh, Resistance Behind Bars, that uh, a, a lot of what women end up doing, uh, organizing uh, better educational programs and, and so forth, uh, seems to be what people sometimes imagine or used to imagine prisons were for in the first place. I mean, they're still called correctional institutions, even though they don't uh-huh. attempt to correct anything. And and it seems that the act of, of resisting, of organizing, of doing something is actually rehabilitative uh, for many of these women. Uh, and yet the prisons fear it and try to stamp it out. It seems yeah. that this is, this is corrections running up against uh, the, the so-called correctional institutions that want nothing to do with, with rehabilitating anybody. Yes. I mean, it's a euphemism, kind of like the voluntary work program is a euphemism for we're going to make people work so that that way we can keep costs of detaining 39,000 immigrants in, you know, in prisons or in immigrant prisons um, without having to pay as much money as we would otherwise. Voluntary work program is a euphemism. Correctional institutions are also a euphemism. So ostensibly you sentence somebody to prison and somehow they gain the skills, the insight, the knowledge, whatever, to quote-unquote correct their behavior, putting the onus on them. But they, even if it was the best-run facility, you know, with tons of programming in which people can get their GED and their, you know, this, that, and the other, and they learn a skill and everything else, they still come back out into a society in which they face the same uh, racial profiling, they face the same, you know, like they face the same economic, uh, lack of economic opportunity, they face the same, like, crappy housing, the same, you know, like... Plus criminal profiling. And they now have a felony record as well. So now it's like you go for a job at like, you know, Pizza Hut and they're like, well, you have a felony record. Um, right. You know, like, why, why should we hire you instead of this other person that doesn't have a felony record? Um, so, so basically, like, even if correctional institution was not a euphemism and there actually was some sort of corrective program, it doesn't actually solve the larger, broader um, societal lack of opportunities and in inequalities that are going on. But in many prisons and jails, if not all of them, there really are a dearth of programs that actually will help people. I'm not saying that there aren't some programs right. in which certain segments of the prison population benefit from, but overall, people don't get sent to prison to be corrected and to learn better skills, they're sent to prison to basically remove them from society for X period of time. You are no longer in society. You are not other people's problems anymore. Um, we don't have to address all of these other issues that contributed to what, um, to who you are and what you've done because we've just removed you, and that's it. You just go far, far away, and we don't have to see you for X number of years. 
Uh, that's the problem. And there are so many issues that I wish uh, we had time to go into, um, but we're just about out of time. Uh, Victoria Law's book is called Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women. I highly recommend it. Uh, there are uh, lists of organizations and ways you can get involved and help uh, at the back of the book. Um, I, I think clearly we need to improve prisons and close them and shut them down. Uh, Victoria Law. Yes. Thank you for for all the work you're doing uh, and for taking the time to come on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.